a paradise found and a paradise lost. Adam and Eve enjoyed all of the flawless fruits of the Garden of Eden before their choices brought about what we call the fall, the separation of man from God on the earth, the initiation of our mortal experience, the ushering in of death. While the fall of Adam and Eve has traditionally been viewed as the great sin we are all still paying for, the truth is that we have inherited no punishment as a result of Adam's transgression. The fall was a crucial early step in God's work and glory. Our eternal life simply could not be possible unless we could be right here, right now, to choose it for ourselves. And what can we learn from a young family driven from their home and exiled to a barren land of harsh realities and dark influences? I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. When I was a kid, I wasn't really the one that would get into trouble. However, I was the one that liked to instigate a little bit and cause some trouble. When I was a kid, I don't think I got into to too much mischief, but whenever I'd do something wrong, you could count on me to lie about it. I was usually the one that liked to come up with plans or ideas, get them to do these things, and then I'd sit back and go, wow, why would they do that? Mom, I'm so sorry, that's crazy. I remember being about eight and a half and having my first theological crisis when I realized I had lied to my mom so much I no longer remembered all my lies. And I thought I had to repent for each one and I'm like, oh no, I'm just shot, right? Um, I've, I've, I've lied and now, and now I can't remember enough to, to repent of each one and get out of that. Welcome everybody to another episode of Come Follow Up. Today's discussion will come from our studies of Genesis chapters three and four and Moses chapters four and five. And the two topics we're gonna to discuss today are first, the fall was a necessary part of God's plan to redeem his children. And the second topic we're gonna to discuss is the first family. And to help us with our discussion today, we wanna to first introduce one of our scholars, James Goldberg. Welcome, James. It's good to be here, Ben. James is a historian, an author, a playwright, a poet. He's also a cancer survivor, among many other things. And next to James, we have our special guest, Melinda Brown. Welcome, Melinda. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, Melinda has a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University in economics. And she's also a teacher, a public speaker, and she is a very well-respected author. Uh, do you mind telling us the title of your book? Sure, it's Eve and Adam, Discovering the Beautiful Balance. And we're excited to get your input on today's topic, uh, being that you authored such a book. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. Well, let's jump right into our first topic of discussion, which is the fall was a necessary part of God's plan to redeem his children. And James, I would love for you to give us a little bit of a background on what we're gonna talk about. Yeah, I think the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis is one of the best known stories in the Bible. It shows up all the time in artwork, in pop culture, and part of it is really easy to believe. You barely need faith. And that is that we live in a fallen world, mm. right? Whether you're religious or not, there are moments where we're children of God. We, we have that peace of God in us and we can feel the difference between what's possible and, and the world we know, what we see around us. 
And this idea in different forms comes up in a lot of religions. In uh, Sikhism and Hinduism, they talk about Kali Yuga. That's the idea that there are different ages that creation goes through. And right now we're in Kali Yuga. We're in the, the dark uh, age when, when things are hard mm -hmm. and, and people make bad choices. Um, so the idea that we live in a fallen world, baseline. The thing that takes faith, but that's one of the incredible restoration teachings we have is the other part, the idea that there's purpose in the fall, that it's a, a fortunate fall. Necessary. Necessary, mm. yes. There's an Eliza R. Snow phrase that Joseph Smith will use too that they'll talk about the key of knowledge turning. And this is really one of those moments where I feel like restoration scripture, both in the book of Moses in the chapters we'll cover and in the book of Mormon, mm. uh, is almost like a key that turns and helps us see Eve in a different way, which changes everything. Really, my whole sense of how I relate to the the world around me and the trials we go through is totally changed by this restored knowledge of how to interpret even the choice she made in Eden. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Melinda, uh, give us your take on just some of the things that you've studied and learned about Eve. Well, I think when we start reading this story, one of the very first places that we tend to get caught up in and, and a little tripped up in is when we hear in Genesis that Eve and Adam are given two commandments right off the bat. The first is that they need to multiply and replenish the earth. And the second is that they're not supposed to eat of this tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, we're missing a piece from Genesis that we get a few more hints in Moses, which is terrific, but in the Book of Mormon, we really get an important piece. And that's in 2 Nephi chapter 2. And in fact, as you're studying these chapters this week, really 2 Nephi chapter 2 just should be your companion chapter. You, you just need so many pieces in this. And we get that in uh, verses 22 and 23, where Lehi makes clear that Eden and the garden was in a static state. No progression was happening there. They were just still. It was a tutoring time, and it was sometimes referred to as a temple experience. It was definitely sacred time, but uh, they could not progress during that time. And in verse 23, it says, and they would have had no children. That's so critical. So much of the rest of our Christian brothers and sisters don't have that key that unlocks the understanding. Because right away, what that does is it sets up two mutually exclusive options. So they couldn't keep both of those commandments. They had to use their agency to choose one or the other. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Sister Francine Benyon, who said, we are here not just because God decided it would be a good idea and made it happen, not just because Adam and Eve fell and we automatically followed, but because we chose to come. However essential what God or Eve or Adam did to make it possible, we believe the decision to be born was our own. Our very brief accounts of life before this earth suggest that we chose as Eve chose, and we defended that choice in whatever kind of war can take place among spirits. Our birth is evidence of courage and faith, not helplessness, shame, and disobedience. That is beautiful. You know, I love the idea that as we defend that choice, we're essentially defending Eve. Yes. So what is that knowledge that we gain from the idea that it was our choice? How does that help us as we try to navigate in this fallen world? 
That is a really important question to understand, and I actually think that leads perfectly to the second hang-up we often get as we read this story, which is this snake in the garden. And it's a little confusing of why he was allowed in there. But in my opinion, that had everything to do with introducing enough uncertainty that we were making the choice truly based on our own agency, not because Eve and Adam were so incredibly obedient, which they were, they were amazingly noble to be given this role, but because they needed it to be fully their decision to take this step. And that really is like they were pioneering proxies to what we were doing because we all made this choice as well. And it truly was our choice to be here. So when things get hard, like James yeah. was talking about, even though we don't remember back that far, if we have faith, we can believe that we made that choice once and we can make it again. Yeah, and that's the part that sometimes takes faith, right? In the book of Moses, it says that, that Satan as the serpent tried to beguile Eve. It says he sought also to, to beguile Eve for he knew not the mind of God. We believe that this was intentional. And when you go all the way back to Genesis to just handful of words, imagining ourselves in them, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. That key of knowledge that's turned is for us to, to celebrate that moment, right? But celebrate knowing that it comes with everything in mortality. Can you think of an example where there have been difficult choices you've had to make in life, knowing that you would go through some struggles, but that in the end, it would be something that would be worth it. Maggie, please. I just recently turned 18, and that means I only have a year left to prepare for my mission. And as I feel inadequate about teaching and being able to go out on my own, I just have to remember that even though there's going to be hard times, just trusting in the Lord and having Him speak through me using the Spirit it's just so amazing. What have you seen happen in the lives of other people that you know where they've kind of gone through a similar process, but in the end they have realized, man, that was worth it. I have a brother out on a mission right now and we were really close and all of his friends, I get all their emails every week. And it's, it's so amazing to see them go from a high school where they are just focused on the world and the fun things around them. And then seeing them change by going through the mission field and just feeling of this, the love of the Savior and the love for the people they're serving. Man, that was what a great comment. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it really does kind of point to this idea that the decisions that were made were knowing we would go through difficult times, but that in the end they would be worth it. You'd mentioned in the introduction the, my cancer experience, and that's one where I knew going in it was going to be hard. And I knew that like the cancer treatment is super hard and that's what I need. That's good for me. There was still, uh, I think it was the sixth cycle <laughs> of intensive chemotherapy where I remember kind of talking to God and, and saying, I know it has to be hard, right? I know you change us through trials, but if you're baking a cake, I think the oven's a little too high here, right? Like, and then the thought that immediately came to mind was that in the scriptures, it doesn't talk about baking cakes. It talks about refining silver. It breaks my heart to know that there were times when people were going through hard things and their immediate thought was to curse Eve mm. for putting us here. Yeah. 
Yes, I agree with that. I think the one piece that is also really, really beneficial to remember is that in that premortal state, as we made the decision to come, the reason we did is because of how well we knew our Savior, who we sometimes don't think of him as being our Savior even way back then, but he was. His atonement is an infinite atonement that goes both directions infinitely. And even at that stage, we knew that we could trust him so completely that he could actually do what he said he could and would do. And that's why I think we celebrated it, even knowing not exactly how hard it would be, but being told again and again, this is gonna be a piece of cake. And it was that trusting him that made all the difference. Eve is our archetype of being willing to step into uncertainty. Definitely. Not totally being sure, but feeling like there's something here, this needs to happen. And when you step into uncertainty, you're also stepping into grace. There's a President Oaks quote I love where he talks about Eve. He says, some Christians condemn Eve for her act, concluding that she and her daughters are somehow flawed by it, not the Latter-day Saints. Informed by Revelation, we celebrate Eve's act and honor her wisdom and courage in the great episode called The Fall. Absolutely. I, and I love that thought. And, and I want to get an example from the audience of experiencing that joy after enduring some sort of trial or pain. Please, Kim, go ahead. I was a single parent for 26 years, and dating was just not always the funnest thing. But I had standards that I wouldn't settle for, and I wanted a temple marriage. And 26 years later, I found my Prince Charming, and we've been married two years now, got sealed in the Salt Lake Temple, and that just means the world to me. And there were times I doubted, thinking, oh, this is just never going to happen, never going to get married again. But I, I did have faith, and I knew Heavenly Father had a plan, and it was a little longer than my plan, but it worked. And I'm just so appreciative and grateful for the amazing husband I have now and that we were able to be sealed. That is such a beautiful example. Thank you so much for sharing that. And what a great way to, to end this discussion that the fall was a necessary part of God's plan to redeem his children. When we had family issues as I grew up, the best ways that my parents would step in and kind of resolve those were a little less hands-on no one was like allowed to get mad at what other, other people said. You were allowed to speak your truth, and it was all just open communication for the, the greater good of, of the family. They would sit back and say, what do you think we should do to solve this problem? What, what do you think could have caused this to not actually happen? And how can we make this not happen again? And it, it helped involve all of us into the decision-making when we were frustrated, when we were fighting. It helped us go, you know what, it's my responsibility to sort this out and figure it out myself. Let's get into our next topic, which is the first family. And to help us kind of jump into this, we have a question from one of our viewers. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Kathy, and we're from Salt Lake City, Utah. Joe and I just recently got married. And when we read in the Old Testament, it says that Adam and Eve were the first family. Our question is, what constitutes a family? That's a great question. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know my kids sometimes get really into the idea that they're my siblings too, right? Like, <laughs> like hey, 
God's all our father, <laughs> right? We're on this level here. And that's, it's really sweet when that happens, right? Yeah. I think family is interconnection. It's a willingness to not just exist on our own, but be part of something else. And so we're going to talk about Adam and Eve, and there, there may be some lessons that are really particular to a marriage relationship, but a lot, I mean, Adam and Eve as the first family, um, there are lessons for them that, that I think apply to any interdependent relationship and even to how we are as God's family, right? Absolutely. I think in Moses 5, we get a good look at kind of that laboratory idea that is crucial when we look at uh, being in an experience with people that we love that hopefully we're a little more patient with than maybe just strangers we bump into on the street that we're willing to practice and forgive each other a little better and recognize that it's just all try again, try again. Maybe next time we'll do a little better. And so I like the laboratory piece of that. We see it in our church community as well. I just want to underline one thing Melinda said about a laboratory. Sometimes, definitely when we look at church history, sometimes I grew up feeling like I was taught, hey, these people got it right and this is evidence the church is true. And then you find out like they were people, you mm -hmm. know? And I think modern church history, it's really good to think of it as laboratories of discipleship, just experiments in being a disciple. I think that same mindset is going to really help through the Old Testament and any scripture. If you look at whatever people went through as, as an experiment in discipleship, that's going to help. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that Scripture is full of examples and non-examples, meaning that we can learn from watching it done right, and we can learn just as well, maybe sometimes even better, by watching it done wrong. And we get lots of that in the Old Testament. Well, you know, in this, this topic, the first family, Adam and Eve, there was a lot of firsts going on. They were the first couple to be married. They were the first husband, the first wife the first parents to have a rebellious child. This is a really big learning process. And uh, I just want to get into some, a few things and uh, get some, and some of your thoughts on that. So with Adam and Eve, let's maybe back up before we take the moment that we've gotten to in the scriptures where they're walking out of Eden into that lone and dreary fallen world. In Eden, when they were created, what did God teach them? Where are you going to take us, James? Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. And Ben, would you read verse 18 for us? And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Melinda, what are some of your thoughts on what that phrase and, and help me? Where does that come from? Where do we get that? What does that mean? That's a great question because I think this is one phrase that is so misunderstood so often. The Hebrew behind this phrase is uh, two words, azer konegdo. And they're crucial words to understand because that first word uh, is an idea of save and help, kind of a combination blend there. And what's amazing with that is that throughout the Bible, we read about azers, but it's almost always divine help. It usually refers to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we see it here being used for Eve, we recognize that is a huge compliment. That's an incredible thing. And in fact, there's so many little bits that, that Eve is clearly a type of the Savior. In fact, her name, life, the Hebrew Hava is life, 
that's a name of the Savior. He is the light and life of the world. So we've got these beautiful symbols. So Melinda, I'd love to get your response on how you have felt as you've learned these things about Eve on a more personal level as a woman. Honestly, it's a game changer. When I dug into this research several years ago, I was really struggling and wrestling with some hard questions. I was working with several nonprofits and being exposed to all sorts of injustices for women around the world, and not just anciently, but in modern days, like right now, and not just in other countries far away, but right here close to home. And that was really difficult for me. I was, I was losing sleep at night, worrying about some of these things. And so by jumping into this and digging and digging and just searching for these true things and finding my own personal witness of the truth, it really changed my perspective. In just an overarching sense, I'm a happier person because I have this understanding now. And I'm so glad to hear that that's been a game changer for you. I hope that it's also a game changer for me because sometimes we live in a culture where there's a lot of ideas about relationships between men and women that we absorb. And I can nominally believe all these positive things about Eve and not quite make that final connection to where I'm treating my closest relationships like my wife is my Eve, right? That, that she's a help me to me, that, that I'm one to her. And I think over the course of my marriage, there have been really concrete things to learn that help change that relationship and, and get us to that ideal. For me, I love what you just said about you, she's your helpmeet, but you're also her helpmeet. It's very much reciprocal. It's not hierarchical at all. It's balanced back and forth like this, which is terrific. Yeah. So, so I, I want to go to the audience uh, and ask you, as you have learned more about Eve role, both from uh, wives, husbands, how has understanding Eve's role in God's plan helped you to be either a better husband, a better wife, or even in general, this role between male and female, how has understanding Eve's role helped you better understand that? I just think normally when you think of a family, you kind of think or in general, how the patriarch of the family is kind of the head of the family. But understanding this, it's helped me understand that how the parents are united in their decisions more rather than the patriarch being the complete head of the family. That is such a good answer. Thank you so much. And you're absolutely right. We do understand that it's not a husband's up here, wife is, it's, it's an equal partnership. That's a very viable lesson that you've learned at such a young age. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. Well, let's talk about that, this idea of roles as mothers and fathers and this unity that should exist. Yeah, question. I think sometimes this misconception of, of a father as sort of the dictator of the house gets related to a way people have interpreted Genesis 3.16, where Eve's told that she'll bear children, it'll be difficult. And at the end it says, and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. How do we understand that, that notion? What's going on in this verse? 
Well, that is a tricky one. That is a really hard phrase. I think it's helpful to recall the rib that we also read about last week in our reading. That's in uh, chapter 2, verse 22, that it tells us that she was created from his rib. Now, we know that is a figurative idea, but there's a lot of symbolism behind that, that she was taken from a bone, that she wasn't created from muscle, which might have us thinking that he could control her, or from brain, that he could think for her, or even that heart, that he could feel for her, or she could feel for him. But a bone is different. That's where that life force is, where the marrow is, where there's everything there to the bone. And not only that, with a rib gone, that rib isn't growing back. He is now incomplete and only complete together, which I think is crucial. So when we look at the idea of the helpmeet and the rib, right away when we read verse 16 in the next chapter, that doesn't sit quite right with us. And in fact, if we dive into the Hebrew of that, we can see, and this is elementary Hebrew, the phrase that is translated here as rule over thee is much more commonly translated rule with thee, which is also supported in our sacred temple liturgy. We would feel that. And it's also been supported by general authorities. Elder Bruce C. Hafen um, wrote an excellent article that was in the Ensign several years ago about crossing thresholds together as partners, as equal partners. And he specifically goes through and clarifies that translation. So I love Elder Hafen. Yeah. So maybe sometimes it's been descriptive of how people have been in, in this yes, translation. That's right. It might sometimes be the reality, this happens, but it's not the ideal. But yes, yes. The, the way we want to be is, is ruling together. That's right. This has been a wonderful discussion about Adam and Eve and how, you know, they were learning as they were going, you know, and the topic of this discussion is the first family. It's on us to really be sensitive to those whisperings of the Holy Ghost as they were, to learn as they went, to try to improve, which brings us back to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which allows that. I'm excited to jump into some more topics on these chapters and the next portion of the show, which is footnotes. Hooray. <laughs> when there's tension in my house, my favorite way to diffuse it would have to be comedy. The first thing we try to do is help everyone to understand that people have feelings and then we always try to resolve everything with fun and joking and just trying to bring happiness back into the picture. We will use distraction. For example, um, start singing a funny song um, or just do something completely unexpected that they're not expecting me to do. Um, maybe start dancing in the middle of an argument, <laughs> something that will just get their minds off of what's happening. Welcome back to the Come Follow Up Footnotes portion of the show. We're excited to welcome back James and Melinda. And also, we're excited to introduce uh, another guest, Mandy Green. Mandy teaches Hebrew. You give tours of the Holy Land. You're a podcaster. And you are a wife and mother of three. Yes. Congratulations. How do you do all that? That's amazing. I just love lots of things. I have a difficulty focusing in on one. <laughs> well, we're very excited to learn from you today. And uh, so we've been discussing our first two topics of the day, which is the fall and how the fall was a necessary part of God's plan to redeem his children and the first family. 
And I'm really excited. Uh, as you can see, we have some physical objects here. We have some poetry we're going to hear about. And so we're going to kind of take this approach uh, artistically and how we can learn about the fall, about Adam and Eve in artistic ways. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Yeah, let's talk first um, a little bit about why it was so important to us to use art and poetry as a way to reflect on Adam and Eve. What do you guys get out of art spiritually? Well, art uses a lot of symbols, and symbols don't have a pre-prescribed meaning, right? It's what you bring. You're a participant in the arts, right? Instead of being a consumer of entertainment, you bring something to this process, and there's layers and layers there's no, you can't exhaust a piece of art, I don't believe. That's right. I think also in the case of the story of Eve and Adam, we see symbols of that story in classic art everywhere. And some misrepresenting, which is then misunderstood and then misapplied. And so to understand what the meaning is behind some of these symbols and to recognize that it's meant to draw our minds back to this beautiful origin story can change the way we look at a lot of classic art. So art has this power to spark things for yeah. us. But sometimes if we do act as just consumers, yes. we can internalize some negative images. So if we want to reclaim, restore and understanding, we need to to fix our imagination and not just yes. our intellect. Yes, and it also gives us so many opportunities to talk with people outside of our own faith tradition because these are symbols we see if you visit the Louvre, if you go to the Prado, wherever you are, you're going to see these symbols. And so it, it gives us a great place to open up discussions. Yeah, I remember once my sister was really kind of struggling with faith in church, and she said to me, okay, which artist should I be looking at? Because I want to connect. I want to find my way to connect. And the visual art was the way to do that, awesome. right? And she could connect and, and find just that different approach that sometimes is safer when you don't know how to connect another way. Well, and as a little tour guide tip, truth is always hidden in plain sight. But you have to have these eyes to see that Isaiah talks about. And so art is going to maybe have you look at something less literally mm -hmm and inform you, and then the Spirit can beautifully come in and say, have you thought about this? We're going to do this today, which is why. But now, art makes us teachable. Yes. I love that, because it trains us for attention. Yes. Yeah. All right, well, I wanted to start by sharing a poem, and this will be a good, careful listening. Some people are intimidated by poetry, but, but I think if you just let the sounds pour over you and get a couple images out, it's great. This is by a friend of mine named Darlene Young, one of my favorite Latter-day Saint poets, in her book, Homespun and Angel Feathers, mm. that brings together the everyday and the holy, and it's called Digestion in the Garden, about Adam and Eve. Cherries and pears, pomegranates, peaches, apricot syrup that zings through the bloodless veins, courses down to your Achilles and back again to the dancing heart still cycling backwards. Parsley, asparagus, kumquat, and kiwi, and sometimes potato, for big belly sleepiness. Enough, if you can learn to love the yearning, trust the manna never hoard, call it good, sweet, aching, empty, then the filling, then the spending, like the tides, like the branches waving in the wind, wax, coil, spring, dance, rejoice, wane, wink, yawn, bend, breathe. Enough, a pleasant, peaceful place, but here's a stranger saying maybe there's a way to do without the yearning, 
satisfy it once and for all, achieve in one bite the end, reach your destination. Didn't even know you were on a journey. Now you catch a glimmer of the path beneath your feet. Appetite, imagination, expectation, lust for all that's good. And how can it be wrong to have it, whatever it is? Ingest, digest, become, arrive, achieve, be full. Didn't God plant the hunger and the tree? Now you sit and sigh against the tree in momentary satiety, feeling the changing of your heart as bubbly spirit turns to muddy blood under your skin that pools around your still digesting gut and wakes a new and gnawing lust for meat, wakes a fear of cold and thirst and death, wakes with growing horror and with joy, a mind to see that yes, it was a lie, and yet it was a truth as well. There is a destination, there is a path. We were talking uh, earlier about the two contradictory commandments. Yes. And I love the way the one line, didn't God plant the hunger and the tree? Yes. Kind of brings that together, right? And it almost gives you a sense like, in the scriptures, we. It's hard to put your finger on the precise thing that Eve realizes. And I like that in the poem, it's, it's vague a little bit, but there is this realization, right? Yeah. Where you see her pushing through one static way of life toward this, this dynamic forward momentum. Well, mortality is paradox. Yes, We're very uncomfortable with paradox and spiritual ambiguity, but this is, this is our life. Yeah. The, those two things, and you choose. You choose a good part, yep. and you go forward. So we have some objects in front of us. And in the poem that James read, there was the word mentioned pomegranate. Yep. And uh, in front of us, we have a pomegranate. So uh, let's find out, what does this have to do with Adam and Eve? Okay, well, there are actually lots of symbols in a pomegranate. I'll pick this up. Right off the bat, we see this interesting part. This is actually called the calyx. And this kind of represents a crown, you might be able to tell, which is a beautiful reminder of the noble character of Adam and Eve, their royal roots with their heavenly parents. And um, another thing that's really awesome about it is it's reminiscent of the shape of an imperial orb. And a lot of times in classic art, especially in depictions of the Madonna and child, you'll see uh, the baby Jesus holding it as if it were an imperial orb, which is really an awesome like top piece of the about scepter, it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, he would have a scepter in one hand and the orb here. So those are a couple of things, but it goes much deeper than that. So we don't know what the fruit was. Genesis Correct. doesn't say, but Correct. apples are not... <laughs> Never even mentioned in Genesis. Never mentioned where we, we have... You don't have a lot of apples in your visit to the Middle East. <laughs> That's, That's right. Say that. That's right. We get figs mentioned yep. very specifically, which in terms of fertility, a fig would be a really obvious choice to choose because of the like huge number of seeds in a fig. But that's also beautiful in a pomegranate. And also pomegranates are they depicted. They come up in Exodus. Yes, hanging from the high priest's robe, it alternates pomegranate and gold bells. And so there, we know there's some real significance with the pomegranate. So I personally love the idea. Well, and archeologically, that's the one piece of evidence they found from the high priestly robe is a pomegranate bell. Oh. We have one that we found, so. Awesome. There's all these temple threads that also yes. go with this. 
Yeah, so in some sense, it doesn't matter what you imagine for the fruit, except that by having a pomegranate, it can link this story with yes. some other stories. Yes, and I think it is worth pointing out, though, that it has been linked somewhat maliciously to an apple, because when it was translated into Latin, the Latin word for apple is a homonym for the Latin word for evil. And that was probably that kind of a Disney her, poison apple. Yes, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> not an accident. Those Latin translators, they well, were definitely trying to send a message. So they're yes. trying to back up their creeds that they had yep. adopted, yes, and good point. of course, women, Eve. Yeah, evil. You know, here we go. We're going to choke on this piece of apple, and yes. here we go. Well, I know one thing my wife likes about imagining a pomegranate、mm -hmm. is she says if you think of Eve in the garden taking a look at this fruit, it looks one way on the outside, but she imagines when when Lucifer breaks it, suddenly you get a very different experience on the inside of a pomegranate. So we're going to go、yeah. ahead. Not only that, but you wouldn't accidentally. Eat、yes, that, because that takes some thinking. Like, yeah, how are you, we even going to get into that? Yes, right. This、It、is much more intentional yes, a choice. Yes, yes. so we're going <laughs> to like parent head that way. You think it's one piece of fruit until you open it. That's right. <laughs> should we be nervous watching James cutting Cut, cutting something? <laughs> no, it's going to be beautiful. No, you should be excited because、yes. it's like a treasure. Yeah, absolutely. When you open up a pomegranate, if you haven't seen one before, there's all these little seeds. And they're just beautiful, like like jewels. Yeah. And you get almost sometimes it's it all almost a star shape. That's right. On the inside of that pomegranate, there, I just really love that visual. And it's such a beautiful symbol of that choice. Like you said, it was one choice, one cut. And look at the fruit of the cut. Fruit's always something to do with the divine feminine, with Eve, with. Nephi's vision of the tree, the fruit of the、mm. tree, the Savior's work—I mean, it just goes on and on about this、mm. multiplicity of possibility and fruit and happening, and certainly strong ties to the Savior with that blood-red juice just pouring out and that beautiful scarlet color. Really, really symbolic. Absolutely. So we've had a poem, we've had a pomegranate. <laughs>、uh, what's next? We have this beautiful sculpture. This is created by the artist Caitlin Conley, and it's called "Girl with Space to Fall." It's one of my absolute favorites. That is such a good title. Isn't that a great title?、Um, that right off the bat, it reminds us of a verse in Alma. If we turn to Alma chapter twelve, verse twenty-four, we read, "And we see that death comes upon mankind. Yea, the death which has been spoken of by Amulek, which is the temporal death." Nevertheless, there was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which has been spoken of by us, which is after the resurrection of the dead. So, I think that that、uh, informed her title of that a bit. I love that. I love the way it helps you take kind of a step back to the the cosmic level to say, okay. We're we're coming into to mortality, and it's a choice, and it's ready. Kind of reminds me of doing trust falls. Yes, definitely.、Um, that you've got that you've got these great Caitlin Connolly feet. Really that solid. That look really anchored, but she's she's not stuck there, right? She's ready. That's right, and you can also tell that her eyes are open. 
If we turn her around a little bit, she's not doing this with her eyes closed, but she's got her eyes open and is well aware and doesn't look panicked. There's no sense of panic on that face, which is beautiful. And that goes back to the teaching that there shouldn't be a panic because there right. is a space granted yes. to us to repent, that there, we are allowed to make mistakes. Yes. I love that. That's yes. a beautiful imagery, just that simple, calm expression on her face. And Caitlin actually said about this piece, what she hopes most is portrayed is this idea that failure is strength, that it's meant to be a learning experience and practice is what it's all about for this time frame right here. Well, in that injunction that to learn from your own experience, to know knowledge is, in Hebrew, it's, it's experience. It's not this, it's this. It's getting mm. in this grind and actually acting it out and knowing it for yourself. I think that's part of that beautiful space. And then there's this beautiful line in uh, the Wisdom of Solomon that says, your peace was prepared before ever your war was. Oh, I love that. Think of, think of this girl before, and if you know your peace is prepared before you fall, it's all going to be okay. It's all provided for. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, this marble plinth that she's got it on that clearly has given her the space is also yeah. an important piece of the sculpture itself. It's not just a base for it, but it's, it's that visual that, oh, yeah, there is room. Like, that's what it's meant to be for. And I love that you've got kind of this implied vertical line that, that she's leaving something, yes. this heavenly state, yeah. and then there's room that's been laid out. Like you say, it extends quite a bit yeah. behind her. Well, and Adam so in space. Hebrew is this red, earthy dirt, yeah. right? He's literally mm. made from this earthy red. So this is very terrestrial, like very earthy, and yeah. you're about to jump in. Yeah, another important piece of this is to notice that she's clothed. And one thing we didn't hit in the earlier segment was that section of Genesis and Moses that's so profoundly beautiful about that clothing they're prepared with, that she wasn't sent out exposed and, and vulnerable, but she's got this protection and it's part of her and it's very divine. Well, and so beautifully in contrast to the injunction to take these fig leaves, right? Can you imagine fig leaves on here? <laughs> oh, goodness. What's the shelf life of a fig leaf? <laughs> Not good. Right? So we're taking the things, Terrence Smith has this beautiful presentation about, we take these fig leaves, we take the things of the world, addiction, worldliness, whatever, and we try to cover with those, but it's not a lasting covering. So inadequate. And so with blood being shed, the sacrifices made and they're given coats of skins. Anytime someone's clothed, in duos, the Greek, to be clothed with. Putting so on think Christ. of endowment as a clothing. Like there's this very radical clothing of skins as opposed to the oppositions. Take some fig leaves. It's all going to be okay. <laughs> it also represents a crucial little interim there where they weren't having an angry expulsion out of the garden. Yes. In fact, they were being well prepared. It was a pause. It was patient. It was gentle and preparatory. And it was crucial to what lay ahead. It was, it was leaving with strength. And it's interesting you mention that because right before the story of the fall, at the end of chapter two of Genesis, you've already got this idea that they're going to be leaving. 
Yes. Um, do you have those yes. verses handy? In fact, I wanted to point out this one thing, if you don't mind. This is our first like little tinkling of our Heavenly Mother here in verse 24, chapter 2. Wherefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That's it right there. What other father and mother could Adam be leaving? To cleave to this beautiful woman, it's, it's right there. We, we read right over that and we tend to like go Exodus. We need to go Genesis. <laughs> yes, yes. But they had this perfect model that I found in a lot of my research that other scholars of other faiths would say, isn't that amazing that they're going out as a nice partnership with no model? And I think, mm. yes, they had a model. <laughs> they were there. They were being tutored by divinity. We've been taught by modern prophets and apostles. And that divinity, it wasn't, it was their savior, certainly, but it was also their parents. Well, so. in this verse here, chapter 3, verse 6, coming back to our beautiful pomegranate, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, wisdom is all about the woman's role in a heavenly archetype in this male-female partnership, she sees that wisdom is part of this partaking. And I know that's a key part right there. She wants to be like her mother and Eve wants to be like her father and they want to do it together just like they have to leave. That's part of that jump. Absolutely, beautiful. And we've talked about how art can spark things and raise questions, and that's good, right? Like we, yes. we learn from these, these unfinished spaces. I've got another poem about that moment. Awesome. This one's by a poet named Mary Jane Rice. You know, there are so many poems and short stories about Eve. I think as Latter-day Saints, we've recognized that that's like deep in our our theological DNA, right? So we identify so strongly that people almost can't help but go and revisit this story as, as they're working out their writing. All right, so this is Mary Jane Rice's poem just called Eve. Sometimes things shout so soundlessly, you must listen. Like when fragrant fruit, ripe with promise, hangs within reach, woos you in capital letters, just one bite. Then reason hisses. Wisdom lies in the hairbreadth between shalt and shalt not. You could almost fall into it. Only hindsight's naked eye sees what was at stake. The seam split wide between life and death. You'll want to hide, to crawl between one beat and the next of your own thudding heart, but don't. Instead, pair out experience Carve this lesson in the prints of your hands and feet. Eat first to learn hunger. Hunger will soon teach you to yearn for bread. So I love that you, because you are a poet, and you just share with us two poems. And I love the idea that we can, through art, learn in so many different ways, because I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can think, I can only learn from this and unless this prophet or so-and-so said this it must not be true but truth exists in so many different places in life specifically in art as we're talking about today so can you just touch a little bit on how have you you know strengthened your testimony through reading things like this i think it takes some trust 
in your ability to recognize that spiritual spark, right? If I don't need everything to be absolutely correct, then I can allow myself to go into the space where maybe the poem teaches me something and it teaches me something because God teaches me something, right? right? Like when I feel that, so maybe I'm a little like Eve here, but I'm willing to take that trust fall into art and wonder and yeah, just trust that that between truth and error, like God will help me find truth because truth, truth is light, truth sparks something. Mm-hmm. And, and when I read a poem like that, I, I feel it, I find it. Art should be an invitation to active discipleship. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's true, honestly, of anything, right? Like Absolutely. when you yeah. go into church, if you just take in everything that's said in church passively, well, what percentage of, of the things said in church today were true? It's not a hundred. Spoiler alert, like usually we're humans. Wait a second. Yeah. It's a little bit of a mix. So we need to be that, that more active participants in our learning. And right. I love your activeness. Hebrew is a very mm-hmm. active language. Yeah. Our Greek background is girl, table. And, and, and right. in Hebrew, it's, you know, fashioning, forming, right? So I was at this rock concert last night. It was amazing. <laughs> but everyone was singing with the artist and he was he was blown away because we were participating with the arts. We were part of the show. We were, that was a very different than just like putting in your mm-hmm. headphones and walking. Do you see the difference? Like we're involved and we're with it. Our blood's pumping and. Definitely. When Nephi says liken the scriptures unto us, are we really willing right. to do that and put our whole hearts on the line, right? To step into what is, what might this moment feel like, right? Yes. And how do I. How do I enter that? How do I sing with the song? Yes. Yeah, and that diversity of us. My likening is very different yep. than Mandy's and very different than yours and Ben's. And we're all so unique. I love that there's a language for each of us, right? Like whatever it is that speaks to you, the Lord will find the way to get there. And that is awesome. That's incredible. I think too that, that art can link different ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're reading the scripture, you get the most out of it when it's not just that verse in isolation, when you start to see how that verse links to others. And the end of this poem, eat first to learn hunger, hunger will soon teach you to yearn for bread, mm-hmm. right? Bread reminds me of Jesus, bread of life. It reminds yeah. me of sacrament. So I, here's Eve taking this fruit and having one experience and starting the fall. And that's going to lead into this other experience. And with one word, bread, Mary Jane has helped me cross-reference, not just in a footnote, right? But but in my heart, in my mind, and that linking of spiritual synapses, right? I think that's when you start to really feast on the scriptures and love them and and write them on your heart. Going back to this idea of likening the scriptures Mm -hmm. in Moses chapter 5, Melinda, I think we were talking about this earlier this idea of working together, teamwork. I'd love to get your thoughts on on this section right here. Yeah, well, this is really such a precious part of scripture because these 15 verses at the beginning of chapter five are absent in Genesis, whether they were there and taken or they've been added by Joseph Smith in his better translation. They are so powerful because they're all these evidences of what they did together. Everything is together. Everything is they. Nothing was alone. It was all done jointly. And then I especially love verses 10 through 12 is such a beautiful section. First, we hear from Adam and his voice. 
and what he's learned. And then we hear Eve in her voice, which is not common in scripture, to hear Eve's voice, which is so beautiful. And let's actually hear what she said. Do you want to read that, Mandy? I would love to. You read verse 11 for us. And Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad, saying, were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed and never should have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. And you talk about seed, and we've got this yes, pomegranate open. Right I love the, the seeds and the, the sweetness of seeds. Yes. And, you know, let's just not miss verse 12, because I think we often stop with Eve's section, which is awesome. But verse 12 says, And Adam and Eve blessed the name of God, and they made all things known unto their sons and their daughters. I mean, how many examples of their union and their balance do we get in that one little verse? So many of those words are about the togetherness of that. I love that. President Nelson has reminded us and really made the focus that true gospel learning should take place in the home where we have a man and a woman teaching together. And that's where the real focus is. It's beautiful. And so, Mandy, you've put in a lot of time and you've, you've paid the price for what you've learned. Can you just tell us how has that affected you on a personal level in your relationships? Wow. Well, I think when I'm empty as a woman, I don't lend myself well to my other roles. Studying Hebrew, travel, seeing the world fills me up. It's, it's opening that fruit up, and I love every delicious seed in there. <laughs> and then I get so excited, like Eve, I, I get so excited, I have to share it, and I have to teach it, and my children just hate it. But, you know, we're at the Louvre, and I'm like, this painting, right? And I, I think it's contagious. Truth has threads everywhere, and I just love to pull that thread. If, if there's nothing to it, it will pull out. But if you keep pulling, there's something there, and it can be fruit, or it can be art, it can be text, it can be the body, it can be nature, it can be anything that lights you up. And so I, I would just say, like, find what lights you up, and it will make you just shine in all of those roles. It will make you amazing. That is one of the most beautiful ways I've ever heard that put. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you've added to this discussion. Melinda, James, thank you all for joining us. This has been a wonderful discussion. And thank you all at home for being with us. Please come back next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.